Okay, okay, we're going to get to the podcast in just one minute. But imagine I gave you the opportunity to invest in Microsoft, in Apple, in Tesla at its infancy. And now you made all this profit and it would be unbelievable. You'd be so thankful and so grateful. I believe that that day is today for Torch. Because for the next 36 hours, every donation you contribute at givetorch.net is doubled by our generous matchers, and you can come in at the ground floor. Yes, last year, over 1 million people enjoyed our podcasts. You as well, I hope. And I believe we can get to 10 million this year, but we need your help. It's only one day a year that we ask. We need your contribution. We need your partnership. We love your partnership and your friendship. Please contribute at givetorch.net, givetorch.net. Every dollar is matched. I apologize for taking your time. Thank you so much in advance for your support. Enjoy this episode. You're listening to Rabbi Arya Wolby, Director of Torch, the Torah Outreach Resource Center of Houston. This is the Jewish Inspiration Podcast. We are now on our third class on the topic of carrying our fellow's burden. No Sebaolim Chavero that if your friend is suffering, your friend is facing a challenge, to help them carry that burden and to assist them in their plight, in their happiness, in all of the issues that they're dealing with. wanted to talk as follows, and let's, let's reset the stage here with what it is we're working on. What is this trait that we're working on so carefully over the past several weeks? So if we recognize every single day when we pray, what is it that we pray? We don't pray as individuals. It's a very unique thing that in Judaism we don't pray as individuals, but rather we pray as a community. It's a very special thing. All of our prayers are in the plural. Why are they in the plural? Because we recognize that part of being a servant of God is being God-like. And just as God is in pain when his people are in pain, so too we need to be in pain when our brethren are in pain. So even though it may be, if you were ever thinking, you know, we're, we live here in Houston, and when we had Hurricane Harvey, when we had all of these other, the Memorial Day flood, it was very nice and very heartwarming that people from all over the world really came to help us and to assist, whether it was remediating homes or whatever was necessary, people were there. But there are many, many people in the world who didn't have a clue what was going on here. And they didn't have an idea that the devastation that people were experiencing was so great. I had no idea. When they come and they offer a helping hand, it gives us a feeling of warmth. It gives us a feeling of encouragement. It gives us a feeling that someone is there with us. We pray always in plural terms. We say, to give it to us, give us wisdom. We say, forgive us, return us, heal us, bless us with a good year. It's always in a plural. It's a remarkable, remarkable idea that in Judaism we always are focusing on not ourselves alone, but rather we bring in the community with us. We want to feel everyone's pain with us that when someone else is not well, we'll pray for them and find and help them with their healing. We ask for wisdom. We ask for forgiveness. We ask for repentance. We ask for redemption. We ask for healing, etc., etc., etc. In a plural, 
because we want to feel someone else's pain. We want to feel someone else's joy, someone else's happiness. Feel the weight of others. It's not enough to just say, oh, that's terrible. You know, and that's what we say in the Torah, you should love your fellow as yourself. What is the commandment? The commandment is kamocha. Just like you feel your own pain, you feel your own struggle, you feel your own joy, your own, your own satisfaction, feel someone else's as well. Feel it the way someone else is experiencing it, as if it was yourself. I want to share with you a couple of, a couple of different stories. Number one is a story about Rabbi Herschel Schechter. Rabbi Herschel Schechter, many of you may know, is the leading Torah authority in Yeshiva University. He runs their yeshiva program. So he was in Israel, in Jerusalem, and typically he has his own driver, but for whatever reason, he did not have his own driver that day. And it was the last day before he was traveling back to the United States, and he forgot his briefcase in the cab. The guy who came into the cab right after him noticed that there's a bag. Yes, the cab driver. The cab driver says, open it up, see whose it is, and and. So he says to him, he opens up, the guy in the back, you know, the, the passenger opens up the briefcase. He says, wow, this is a really big rabbi. He says, really? He's a big rabbi? He says, not only a rabbi. He says, you know the Baba Sali, who was one of the great Kabbalistic rabbis in Israel? He's that of America. That's how big of a rabbi he is. And this guy was like, wow. He says, such a great rabbi. He says, I don't want you returning it. He says, the driver says, I'm going to go back to where I dropped him off to the hotel and I'm going to return it myself. I want, I want to meet such a rabbi who was his passenger just a little while ago. So the driver goes back to the hotel and he goes to the front desk and he says, do you have such a, 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 a visitor in your hotel with such and such name? They look up the computer. They say, yes, we have such a person, uh, but we can't tell you what room number, but we can call him. So he says, no problem. Call him. So his son, the rabbi's son, who was with him staying at the hotel, answers the phone. It was the front desk. They say, someone's here who, uh, he said, no problem. Tell him to leave it at the front desk. No, I want to meet the rabbi. Okay, so the son comes downstairs. He comes with a $100 bill. At least this is the way I heard the story. Comes down with a $100 bill, which is a significant tip, right, to, to, a, uh, to a taxi driver who brings back your lost briefcase. And he gives it to the cab driver. He says, here, thank you so much. My father is already, you know, getting ready for bed. Our flight is early in the morning. He says, no. He says, I don't want the $100. I want the rabbi. I want the rabbi. He sees he has no choice and this cab driver is not going to let him go. So he goes upstairs and he tells his father. He explains to his father, listen, it's a cab driver, a secular Jew. He's insisting he needs to meet the great rabbi from America. Can you please just come downstairs? So he does. He comes downstairs, gets dressed, and the cab driver tells him, he says, I heard that you're a really great rabbi from America, so I insisted to bring his bag back to you. I don't want the $100. I don't want your tip. I want a blessing. If you're such a powerful rabbi, I want a blessing. He says, I got married 15 years ago, and my wife and I have tried every single treatment to have children, and we cannot have children. I want you to give us a blessing that we will have a child. Okay. The rabbi gives him a blessing. He says, in one year, you will have a baby. You'll have a baby boy. You're going to have a bris for the baby in a year from now. That was the blessing the rabbi gave. You know, the son, when he hears his father say this, he says, that's the craziest thing. He's not like this type of, you know, the Sephardic rabbis, they'll give blessings that, you know, it's like that are just really extraordinary. But Ashkenazic rabbis, that's not their style. And this rabbi Shechter 
from YU. This is certainly something he's never done in his life. But here he did it. He felt he felt a a a, a need to give this person such a blessing. Now I want, I want to just on a side note, I want you to know that there is a great power to blessings. Our sages tell us that when a righteous person blesses down here, the Almighty listens up there. Very powerful. And it says, that all of God's people are righteous, and therefore when we give blessings, it's very powerful. So don't take it lightly. There's another Talmud that says, that the blessing of a simpleton among the Jews shouldn't be taken lightly. Because even a simpleton has great powers. But certainly a great rabbi, such as Rabbi Shachter, can have some significant power. So about a year later, Rabbi Shachter is back in New York. He's back continuing his life. He's at a wedding. Someone comes and he sees at the wedding, he sees the son of Rabbi Shachter. He says, you know, I was just in Israel a couple of weeks ago. I met a cab driver. I need to speak to your father. Is he here at this wedding? He says, my father's here. He pulls him over. He gets his father there. And he says, I need to tell you something. He says, I met this cab driver. And he said that if I go back to America, I should tell Rabbi Shechter that we had a baby. He says, do you know who I'm talking about? Do you know about this cab driver? You know who he is even? So listen to this. And this is the point of the story. The rabbi says, of course I know who he is. I pray for him every single day. Do you understand? The rabbi has a lot of things on his head, but he promised someone that he's going to pray for him. He promised him, he gave him a blessing that he'll have a child. He prays for him every single day. Of course he knows who he is. Of course he was very happy to hear that indeed he had a baby. We need to feel other people's experiences. What are they going through? Whether it be good, whether it be bad, whether it be ugly, it doesn't make a difference. We have to feel someone else's situation. It's an incredible responsibility as humanity to recognize the experience of other people. And when people are happy, we have to also feel their happiness. When people are sad, we have to feel their sadness. Not just, okay, we'll, we'll give a couple of examples. There's actually an amazing story about one of the great Eastern European rabbis. There was a man who didn't have children for many years. He finally had a child, and he came to the doctor with his, ba- with his child. And the doctor says, your baby is terminally ill. Your baby is terminally ill. Doesn't know what to do. He says, there's nothing that we can do in medicine. He says, go implore upon your rabbis. Maybe they can do something. So he goes to the Rebbe, the Varka Rebbe, and the Rebbe puts his head on his hands and he's trying to focus and he's trying to elevate prayers to the heavens, to beseech the heavens. And unfortunately, he was not able to do anything. He says to the Father, he says, I'm sorry. It feels like the heavens are closed. My prayers aren't going anywhere. The man was completely falling apart. He leaves the Rebbe's house. He goes to his, his own house in his, in his own shtetl, in his own uh, village. And he's, he's crying. He's so sad. A few minutes later, he hears a chariot arriving at his house. A horse and buggy. And who comes out? The Varka Rebbe. The Rebbe comes out and the Rebbe comes to his doorstep, knocks on the door. 
And he says to him, Rebbe, what, what, what are you doing here? He says, listen, the gates of heaven may be closed, but I can still come and pray with you. I can still come and cry with you and beseech the heavens. And indeed, they sat together and they cried. And moments later, the child broke out in a sweat and shortly after that was healed from his terrible illness. We can feel someone else's pain. We can feel someone else's tragedy. Love your fellow as yourself. How many times do we hear someone was in an accident, someone got hurt, someone got injured, and our instinct is, oi, it's, it's terrible. I know many people have told me, many people have called me. Thank you so much, everyone, for your, uh, for your kind words. The great Musser masters, they said, when one hears of uh, another person's illness, we naturally sympathize. We say, oh, that's terrible. I'm so sorry. He says, but when we hear of improvement, we stop feeling the pain. We're like, oh, Baruch Hashem. Great, they're feeling better. But do we know the process of recovery? How long that recovery takes? It could take months and months and months. Our great Muslim masters t- tell us that till the person isn't 100% back to themselves, we should still feel their pain. That means that we naturally don't want to really feel that burden. We don't want to feel that weight sometimes. But... If we are able to really break out of our own shell, we can feel, you know what? Yeah, it's good they're feeling better, but they're not back to themselves yet. And as long as they're not back to themselves, we can still feel their pain. We can still be there with them and fulfill this great trait of no sub'ol, carrying our fellow's burden. I want to share with you another amazing story. Reb Nassim Tzvi Finkel, who was the great leader of the Mir Yeshiva, who passed away about 10 years ago. Mir Yeshiva, let's just put it into perspective, has uh, about nine and a half to 10,000 Yeshiva students learning every single day. The Rosh Yeshiva of blessed memory, Reb Finkel, had very advanced uh, Parkinson's and uh, his whole body had tremors and he would be shaking. There was a group of CEOs who came from the United States, uh, all Fortune 500 companies, including Howard Schultz from Starbucks, including uh, Michael Dell from Dell, etc. All Jewish CEOs of major, major Fortune 500 companies. They had a trip to Israel. Obviously, everyone came on their own private jet. They all came to sit, to meet businesses, and to do uh, uh, you know partnerships. You know, U.S. Israel partnerships in business. But they had the privilege of meeting Rabbi Nassim Tzvi Finkel and sitting in his in his house, in his apartment, and to meet with him. So what happened was, is that they're all sitting there, and Reb Svi comes into the room, and Reb Svi is, is shaking, obviously, from his Parkinson's. They're all trying to not look. You know, it's like a little bit uncomfortable. You don't want to look at, at someone who has this, this condition. And Reb Svi, at some point, just bangs on the table. He says, look at me. I want you to all tell me. Why were so many Jews saved from the Holocaust? We didn't have weapons. We didn't have methods of protection. And yet, we were, we were like sheep to the slaughter. And yet, so many made it out alive. How is it possible? How did we make it out alive? And each one gave his reason. 
termination, hope. Everyone gave their, their reason. And Rabbi Nassim Svi Finkel said an amazing idea. He said, I'll tell you why so many Jews did make it out. Many of us, I'm a, I'm, I have f- three of my four grandparents were in, in concentration camps. Two in Auschwitz and one in Kovna Ghetto. My grandfather was, was a German citizen. So he had to flee Poland when he was in the, in the Mir Yeshiva in Poland and he went to, to neutral Sweden. So during the Holocaust, he was in Sweden and, and securing uh, passports and visas for communities. He would get money from the United States and get these visas and save communities. Uh, many, many, many thousands of Jews made it out because he was able to secure those uh, visas for them. But either way, we all have ancestors, relatives who did make it out alive. Rav Nassim Svi said like this. He said, when there were five Jews in a barracks and they only had one blanket, instead of saying, I want the blanket, give me the blanket, and the other one saying, give me, and I'll tell you, I don't know if you've been to Auschwitz. I've been to Auschwitz. I went there. And I went there in springtime. It is so cold in springtime. And you're talking about in springtime in March, it was, you know, 30 degrees, 25 degrees. That's not talking about dead winter where, you know, they would shiver to death. And you, I was in those barracks. They're not insulated. There's no heating. It's inhumane. When they, when they were freezing cold at night, instead of saying, I want the blanket, each one said, no, no, you take the blanket. You take the blanket. So you know what they did? All five of them covered themselves with one blanket. He says, when God sees that we care for each other, God saves us. Now, obviously, there are many questions, and Holocaust is not one of the topics I want to discuss. It's not the realm of our conversation. But what Rabbi Nussin Svi Finkel told these CEOs, he says, each of you have a blanket. Go back to America and shear your blanket. Go back and shear your blanket. You can build JCCs, build JCCs. You can build synagogues, build those synagogues. I'm going out here on another, another topic. I believe that if every single Jew in Houston committed one year, one year, 2021, any year, that they give 10%, their, their tithe, only to Jewish institutions in Houston, we will never need another fundraiser in the city again for a Jewish institution. If all the Jews in Houston gave their tithe only to a Jewish institution for one year, don't give it to the hospital one year, don't give it to the museums, don't give it to to any other charity except for a Jewish institution, I guarantee you we will never need another Jewish organization or fundraiser in this city ever. That's how much money we could give if we shared our blanket. We have to share our blanket. And sharing our blanket doesn't only mean if we have money to give the money. It means to feel someone else's situation, to feel someone else's plight. That's our responsibility. I'll just tell you another part of the story is that Reb Nassim after they all left, one CEO before he, before he left Israel came back to Reb Nassim alone. And that was Howard Schultz from Starbucks. And he was so moved and impressed by the institution, by the rabbi, that he came to Rabbi Nassim Svi and he said to him, 
He said, do you know that I'm a multi-billionaire? I think he's worth $30 billion, I believe. Uh, I don't know. Worth a lot of money. He came to Reb Nassim Svi allegedly, and he said to him, I'm so moved by what you do and by who you are and by your institution. Here is a blank check. You can fill it out for any number you dream, and I have it covered. Any number. But what would you do? You're the rabbi, and here Howard Schultz comes to you and says any amount you want, you can fill out on this check. Fill out a billion dollars? How much? Again, this is another example of carrying someone's burden. Reb Nussensky takes out a pen, and he puts a one, a four, a zero, and a zero. $1,400. And he gives Mr. Schultz back the check, and he says, do me a favor. He says, go across the street. There is a scribe across the street. Buy a pair of tefillin and put on tefillin every day. If you really care about someone, you really care and carry the burden of another person, you don't want an easy way out for yourself. You care about what is the greatest thing that he can do for his eternity, for his olam haba, for his spiritual investment. And there's nothing greater than him performing a mitzvah every day of putting on tefillin. How many of us would do that if we had a blank check of any amount that could be covered? We would think, you know what? It's pretty good. It'll be very comfortable for our yeshiva to never have to raise money again. We have uh, $20 billion in our, uh, in our endowment. We can be like Harvard University, Yale University. They have billions and billions and billions of dollars in their, in their endowment. Pretty amazing, right? No. Him putting on tefillin one time or 10 times is worth much more than all those billions. That's someone who really feels someone else's situation. Ask someone, how are you, and really want to hear how they are doing. I remember when I was in yeshiva, everyone has their days, days that you feel like you're on top of the clouds and days that you feel like you're on the bottom of the world and it's terrible and everything is, is, everything is not going your way. I remember one day I really needed to talk to someone. I needed someone's shoulder to lean on. Yeah, everyone had that day. Everyone's nodding. Yes, of course, we've all had that day. And I remember, oh, I was meeting one of my friends in the hallway of the yeshiva. And he just walks right up and he says, how are you? And I was like, uh, uh, and he just continued walking. And at that moment, I realized this idea of how much we need, when we ask, how are you? We're opening up ourselves to what are the answers? What is the answer to that question? And that's something that we need to be ready for those answers. And if someone needs to lean on us, we need to be there for them. If someone needs to cry on our shoulder, we need to be there for them. If someone needs to share their joy, they're so excited about a a new development in their life, they're excited about a new milestone, a new accomplishment, to be happy with them, to feel their joy. Uh, The great... uh, righteous people who is no sebaol im chavero to carry the burden with your fellow. It's told about the the in Kelm. Once the altar of Kelm was on a on a horse and buggy, and the horse was carrying a very heavy burden. The wagon driver is whipping the horse and the altar tells him, he says, you know why you're whipping the horse so ruthlessly? Because you're not schlepping this burden. 
says, if you went out there and schlepped this burden and saw how hard it was, you wouldn't weapon him so, so, so ruthlessly. You would have some feeling of what it is to carry such a burden. And that's the idea. We need to understand what another person is experiencing. What is their burden right now? Don't just brush it away. It's okay. Get over it. No. Feel someone else's pain. The visualization of what someone else is experiencing is the key. The more details you can understand of what the person is going through, the more you can see, visualize, you can understand, you can experience what they're experiencing. And that's our exercise. When my grandfather talks in his great masterpiece of Ale Shur, the book that my grandfather wrote on uh, developing a Torah Jew so and, and a Musser master, one of the things that he talks about is acts of kindness. And he talks about kindness as not just doing an act, but rather feeling someone else's situation. What are they experiencing? And he gives the challenge to his students to go out there and figure out what are the people around you in need of. This one is in need of a word of encouragement. This one needs a pat on the back. This one needs a smile. This one needs a pep talk. Everyone, what do they need? What are their needs? That is the act of kindness we need to do. Im chavero, identify what it is. And my grandfather gave this challenge to his students. And sadly, my grandfather writes in the book that many of the students had a very, very difficult time. You know why? Because we're very, we grow up being so self-centered. Not in a negative way of being selfish. We know what it means to be kind. But the idea is we understand what it means to be kind because it makes me feel good. I like to give charity because I like it. It makes me feel good. But how about when we give charity to stop before we just write that check to feel the experience of another person? What are they going through right now? It's very important to break out of our own shell and get into the what are the experiences of a different person. Identify the person. Visualize their situation. Everybody's dealing with something. There's no one on planet Earth who's got an easy, an easy life without challenges. There's nobody. Everybody has challenges. Everybody has something they're dealing with. Can we dig into their experience? So here's the thing. I, I believe that we need to go up and down our Rolodex, each and every one of us, and call the people. It's not, it's not too late. We can still do this in, in the current COVID situation. And call the people. How are you? Just checking in on you. I want to hear how things are going. Are you coping well? Right? And I have had people I've called, they say, listen, I'm going crazy. I went through everything on Netflix. There's literally not a show. Right? I had someone tell me this. He says, I've watched everything possible on Netflix. I've listened to everything possible. And now with, with, you know, with politics, people are listening to every podcast possible and every, and watching every television show. And we need to feel people's situation. And just there may be nothing in the world that you can change with their with their challenge. That's not the goal. The goal is not to eliminate what they're experiencing. The goal is to feel what they're experiencing. Feel their pain. Feel their challenge. Carry that burden with them. Don't try to solve it. One of the big differences between men and women, okay, a woman comes home from work, and she complains about her boss. He's so in, inconsiderate. 
He doesn't give me time to finish my work. He's always throw, overloading me and he's this and that. He never appreciates what I do. I work so hard, right? So what does the husband say? Quit the job. That's not what she wants. The men think about challenges as problem solvers, how to fix it. That's not what she couldn't think of that herself. She needs someone to hear her, to understand her, to carry that burden with her. Solutions she can figure out on her own. Now, if she asks for a solution, that's a different story. But it's very interesting that women are communication beings. Men are not. Women, you're all nodding your head, right? You're like, yeah, that's right. Speak to my husband, right? I heard that. <laughs> so so, um, so the, the challenge of understanding another person is not something that we are naturally – it doesn't come pre-installed. It's something that we need to work on. And if it does come pre-installed, we have to enhance it and make it more refined. We need to make it more refined so that when we are – when someone else is dealing with a situation – we can actually feel their challenge. That is the objective. Exactly. Don't let's not try to resolve other people's issues. Let's just feel their pain. That's the I, the the trait of that we're talking about here. Is no sebeolim chaver. I'll give you another example. It's an amazing story. There's a great sage. I mentioned this on uh, uh, the week that we that we were offline, at, right immediately after my injury. So we had an amazing story. Anybody ever heard of Rabbeinu Tam? Rabbeinu Tam was one of the great commentators on the Talmud. Rabbeinu Tam has many, many, many books that Rabbeinu Tam wrote on the Torah. A great, great sage. Now, Tam means perfect, perfection, completion, and that's the name we give him. That wasn't his real name, but that's the name that was given was Rabbeinu Tam. All over the commentaries of Talmud, the Tosafot, you always have quoting of Rabbeinu Tam. In fact, they, they say that of the great Balei Tosfot, the commentators of the Tosfot were the grandchildren, many of them were the grandchildren of Rabbeinu Tam. Who was this Rabbeinu Tam? And why did he get such a name? The great sage of perfection. The great master of perfection. I mean, what type of name is that? So here's the story as I heard it from my rabbi. My rabbi said as follows. You know, there is a, there is a law in Judaism that a man and a woman who got engaged wouldn't get married right away because the girl needed time to put together a dowry before they'd get married, get pots and pans and get linen and get everything that was needed for this new family that was going to get established. So they would get engaged and a year later they would get married. But what would happen if, God forbid, during that engagement, engagement wasn't like it is today. People have an engagement, they break off for engagement, God forbid, right? Or they, you know... There really isn't any strings attached to that. But in the biblical engagement, there was all strings attached. It was a full, it was as if they were married without being married. It means they were fully committed. She couldn't go with any another man, and him, the same, couldn't go with another woman. They were committed. Even though they didn't live as a married couple, that they would wait for the wedding for, but the engagement sort of confirmed the relationship. Everything she acquired really went to the couple, right? Because they're now one unit. So what would happen if during the engagement, you know, her family is already stocking their apartment with pots and pans and dishes and, and, and drapes and, you know, all of the wonderful things a new couple would get in the dowry. And then she gets ill and she passes away. What would happen with that dowry? 
So by halacha, because they were, quote-unquote, married, it belongs to the new husband, even though they never consecrated that marriage, even though they never, they never finalized that marriage, by halachic biblical standards, it would belong to him. Except Rabbeinu Tam made a decree. Rabbeinu Tam made a decree that if they were engaged, it goes back to her family. That all of the dowry that they put in, because the, the marriage was never finalized, it goes back to her family. Why did Rabbeinu Tam make such a decree? Listen to this beautiful, beautiful idea. Because imagine this girl's family. Imagine this girl's family. She was such a young, promising leader. She was a great teacher. She was a great woman. She was going to be another leader, another, another one of the great heroines in, in the Jewish family. She was going to raise a wonderful family with her new husband. She passed away so young. She was engaged. She never was able to, do, to have that family. What a tragedy. The family's sitting Shiva now, and they're mourning the, the, the passing of their daughter. And you know they're going to have one extra cry, one extra, and we lost the dowry. One more cry that Rabbeinu Tam eliminated from a grieving family. For that, our sages tell us, he was named Rabbeinu Tam, the rabbi of perfection, that he was able to feel, get into the, into the world of a grieving family and eliminate and remove one extra cry, one extra sorrow. For that, he was named Rabbeinu Tam, the rabbi of completion, the rabbi of perfection, because he was able to get down to, the, to what was, this family was dealing with to such a great level. He's considered Rabbeinu Tam, the rabbi of perfection. We all are capable. If we really break down what another person is experiencing, try to put yourself in their shoes. We have another Mishnah which tells us that don't judge your fellow till you're standing in their place. Very, very difficult to judge someone unless you're standing in their shoes. When you're standing in their shoes and you really feel their pain, then it's a different story. Wow. You know what? I understand their pain now. I understand their struggle now. And that's what we need to do. When we see someone else in a challenge, we need to, again, even that animal, that horse that's schlepping the wagon, the altar of Kelm, the great elder, the sage of Kelm, felt that horse's pain. It says, oi, that horse is struggling. We all have the ability to acquire this trait. God should help us, that we should have the power, we should have the ability, we should have the strength to break out of our own shell and to get into someone else's situation, what their circumstances are, what their challenges are, and to really be there with them. And you can do this even from afar. You can do this even without them knowing the fact that someone else is helping carry that burden. They have 10 pounds of sorrow, 10 pounds of challenge, of worry, and you're able to take one of those pounds off their shoulder. That's via Haftalarecha Love your fellow as yourself. Because we all know how that feels when someone really gets it. Ah, someone feels my plight. Someone feels my joy. They're really happy with, with my happiness. They're excited with my excitement. And God forbid, they feel my pain. It helps us feel better. But more than that, it makes us be more godlike. 
it helps us be an image of God in this world. Just as God feels the pain of his children, our sages teach us, right? And we see this throughout the Torah. When we are in exile, God is in exile with us. He feels our pain. So my dear friends, let's go ahead and be godlike. Let's go ahead and feel our fellow's situation, whatever it may be, the good, the bad, the ugly. Let's be there with them. Let's break out of our shell of only feeling our own situation and understanding another person's situation. Just like a mother is able to understand and have the intuition of her child's situation, even from afar, we can do that with our fellow man. We can feel someone else's situation if we just allow ourselves to get into someone else's situation, to get into someone else's condition of what they're experiencing. My dear friends, have great success in attaining this trait and um, don't let go. Don't let go of this challenge. It is a great, great challenge and we can all do it. We can all do it. We can all take the steps necessary to become better people, to feel someone else's pain, regardless of how close they are to us. We, everybody needs something. Let's be that someone who feels it for them. My dear friends, go get them. Have a great week. You've been listening to the Jewish Inspiration Podcast, a Torch production. Become a supporter at torchweb.org because your assistance enables more Torah learning around the globe. To find more lessons offered by Torch, please visit torchpodcast.com.